Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks in for Meghna Chakrabarty. Do you have a favorite third place? If home is your first place, work or school is your second place, a third place might be your local bar or cafe, a library or a park, a place where you can connect with neighbors and build community. I would say my third place is the dog park. It's a great place to meet other people from other neighborhoods, economic situations, jobs, races, religions. It just brings everyone together. Um, And I find myself spending a lot of time there, especially at the start of the pandemic. It seemed like that was the only place where um, I could see people and, and life seemed to be normal. That's On Point listener Elizabeth from Baltimore, Maryland. She's one of many who called in to tell us about their third places. My third place is one of four or five local taverns that I tend to frequent. That's where everybody knows my name. I'm greeted with a smile. They know the drink I want and sometimes engage in terrific conversation, either with regulars or entirely new faces. It's a cold water swimming group, and it really took me by surprise to find how engaged I was because I love these people so much, and it is a head-clearing oasis at the start of my day three times a week. I'm a percussionist and most Sundays there's a group of five to ten, sometimes up to fifteen drummers and musicians out the Piedmont Park. That's where I go to make friends and absorb good energy and music from other people. That was Sule Opio in Ray, Georgia, Susanna Natty in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and David Chused in Waltham, Massachusetts. Third places provide a sense of social connectedness and belonging. They can strengthen community, even provide essential services. Access to third places is also linked to better health and happiness. But these spaces have been declining in recent years, and the pandemic only accelerated that. So today, we're talking about the importance of third places, what they are, and how we can rebuild those that have been lost. Joining us now is Danielle Rubart. She's Assistant Professor of Biobehavioral Health and Demography at Penn State University. She studies rural population health and how access to different spaces is connected to well-being. And Professor Rubart, welcome to On Point. It's great to have you. Hello. Thank you for having me. Sure. It's a great subject. I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Let me start with you personally, if you don't mind. What's your favorite third place? Do you have one? 
Mm. So I'm based in State College, Pennsylvania, which is a college town. So we have lots of third places downtown, um, including coffee shops. So um, those are easy places to access um, as third places in our area. So you can typically find me there for for meetings with, with colleagues and friends. Right. And what do you get out of that experience? I mean, how do you describe the benefit of going to your third place? Yeah. So when I talk to people about this, um, you know, there there are different ways to use third places. When uh, the people who coined the term first first sort of described it, these places were places of sociality. And now we look at coffee shops, and they can also be places where you get work done, right? Um, and you're not actually engaging with other people. And there's, you know, evidence to suggest that even when we go sort of in a, a more um, – uh, passive way and are on our laptops, there's still some benefits and sort of building senses of belonging and identity. But when we actually engage with people and have conversations, that can also um, yield benefits along measures of mental health and well-being as well. Mm. So the term third place, if I have this right, was coined by sociologists Ray Oldenburg and uh, Dennis Brissett in the 1980s. What, what, what was the original idea, um, their original idea of a third space? Yeah, that's a great question. So they published this article in 1982 where they basically just summarized Oldenburg, Ray Oldenburg's um, research and findings. He had spent a ton of time in French cafes and English pubs and, um, you know, these low-cost um, places where people could gather. And what he sort of summarized in this paper that there were just a wide array of benefits for individuals, mental health benefits, that these places you could vet your ideas and thoughts and take social cues from others that really help keep you in touch with reality, that they broader your circle of influence. They expose us to, quite honestly, a, a wider diversity of people than we're going to see in our home and our workplace. Um, and they instill in us a sense of wholeness. And, you know, they talk a lot about this concern, and, and I kind of chuckle at this today. It was the 1980s, and they were already concerned about the consolidation of work and home, right? We're no longer living with grandparents and cousins or uncles and um, aunts. And now there's also this rise of big box stores. We only have to go to one store to get everything that we need. And so they were really concerned that we were becoming so consolidated and they saw third places as a way to help. I, you know, I say I laugh because now, you know, we can buy everything we need from home mm. um, and we can work from home. Um, and so I can't imagine, you know, how they would revise that paper 40 years later to think about how important third places can be in the context of these big societal changes. So it sounds like we're talking about a lot of different kinds of places. You mentioned cafes, pubs, uh, places that are sort of open to all, limited or no barriers to entry, parks, libraries, coffee shops beauty salons, uh, bowling alleys, gyms, um, houses of worship, even even shopping malls. And, and, and is the basic idea here that they provide really a means to connect socially and, and a sense of belonging? I mean, we're, we're social creatures after all. We need community. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I will say the research on this, sort of there's two branches of it. Um, what you and I are talking about right now, use, you know, how does actually going to these places, how does engaging in these places, how does that translate into benefits for me individually and, and maybe even for my community? And then there's a second branch that talks about availability. And so these are, these are this is research that's using an ecological approach, sort of saying, um, how does having these things in my community, regardless of if I go there or not, how might that benefit? 
benefit me and my community, um, regardless of if I'm actually going to them. Yeah, it's interesting. And for some time, uh, we've known that this these kinds of places have been in decline. And I'm thinking specifically uh, back to Robert Putnam's seminal book, Bowling Alone, where he mm-hmm. sort of talked mm-hmm. about people literally going to bowling alleys alone. But the broader point there was that, um, you know, how community participation had been in decline, um, how in American society leisure has become more privatized, living as living conditions improve, people choose to stay home with their nuclear families, watch TV. You know, now we've all got our screens to sit in front of. So all of this has worked against the idea of developing these third places, right? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of unknowns here and opportunities for us to ask important questions because with the rise of remote work, yes, people are at home, but people are also using some of these third places to get their work done. And, you know, the research shows, yes, like meaningful engagement matters, right, that I'm going regularly and I'm talking with other people, but those weak ties that we form, right, as we sort of see that regular barista behind the counter every week or um, run into a neighbor, that those can also matter for helping us feel connected Um and less lonely. And so, you know, I, I I don't think sort of we have to be too pessimistic because there's other ways, even if these these spaces are being used in a different way than they were 40 years ago, there's still opportunities for them to have um, a positive impact. That's good to hear. How, um, as Americans, um, how do we rate compared to other parts of the country? And I ask this question from this perspective. Um, I was lucky enough to, uh, I grew up in Europe as a kid, and I always had and continue to have a sense, uh, you know, right up until today, that there seems to be more of a developed sense of third places, of communal places the local cafe, the local bakery, uh, in small neighborhoods in Italian cities, for example, that seem to be more developed in a kind of communitarian way that perhaps they might not be in America. Do we know how we do uh, relative to the rest of the world? Mm, That's a good question. There's um, lots of um, research measuring social cohesion and how that differs across different countries. Um, Less work looking at at third places and how um, sort of trying to measure the differences between countries. What I will say is we have quite a bit of variability even within the U.S. So um, some of my work has shown that, you know, communities with the highest levels of poverty are less likely to have as, you know, they have lower availability of third places. Um, There's different across rurality and urbanicity and also across demographic composition. And so, you know, I think within the U.S., um, there are certainly sort of these spaces where we we could be doing better in providing um, third places in a way that can help both the community and the individuals within that space. Yeah, it seems particularly important as, you know, we talk about, and there's been writing about this recently, a sort of epidemic of, of, of loneliness um, in America. Mm-hmm. And I have to imagine that this is particularly important for older people because we know that as people age, social networks contract, uh, mm-hmm. spouses die, people retire. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, the importance in particular to older people? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So actually, we just um, wrapped up a study that showed that, you know, among 
so we use national survey data from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. And what we found was that among black and Hispanic older adults in rural America, those who had greater availability of third places were significantly more likely to report that their social and emotional support needs were being met. So, so this is saying that, you know, having these spaces within a community um, and within a rural context can be beneficial to the social and emotional feelings and supports of older adults, regardless of if they're going to these spaces, that they're benefiting from having the the social cohesion that comes out of having social infrastructure or third places. Interesting. I want to ask you, too, about the advance of social media. We touched on that, but it seems like it encourages people to spend more time alone. Is there an upside at all to social media? Or maybe uh, another way to ask that, uh, is there such a thing as virtual uh, third places, online third mm. places? Mm. Uh, that's a really great question. And I know some folks who are doing research in that area, I think most people would be um, willing to acknowledge that while social, um, sort of digital or remote um, third places can have benefits, they don't necessarily replace those face-to-face interactions. Right. We're talking about third places, those places that aren't home, that aren't work or school, where you can connect with your community, where you can build community. We're asking you what your first, uh, your third places are, and we're asking why they matter so much to us. And what happened, by the way, during the pandemic? We lost a lot of these third places, so we're going to explore how do we rebuild them. Stay with us. We're going to take a break. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking today about third places, the communities we have outside of the home, school, or work, and how they can benefit our individual and communal health. Many of you shared stories about your third places, so let's listen to a few more. My local public library is my third place. It's where I go to have fun, learn something new, and connect with other people. My library has free Wi-Fi, public computers, and best of all, friendly, helpful staff. Libraries are for everyone. 40 to 50 of us meet weekly at O'Neill's, which is a local pub here in Albuquerque, to share a meal and a beer, listen to speakers, teach us about issues, debate policies to see what we want to work on. A friend and I set up a refrigerator in our town for 
people who were food insecure. And it became a place that both of us looked forward to going to, to bringing food and meeting the people who were using the fridge. And then all the people that we met that helped us get food in that fridge, it became this great community that was supportive and very caring. My third community would be the volunteer work that I do at community serving in Jamaica Plain. My expression of my Judaism is uh, the tenet of tzedakah, and I think one of the major points of that is that the person who is giving gains as much gratification as the person who is receiving. And I think my third community work more than fits that description. So those were On Point listeners uh, Sabina Gorinko in Brookline, Massachusetts, Maureen Davis in Skowhegan, Maine, Ray Ellen Smith in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Robin Cornwall in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma. My guest is Danielle Rubart. She's an assistant professor of biobehavioral health and demography at Penn State University. And um, Danielle, nice range there. Libraries, a pub, a place for the food insecure, and and, and someone who does volunteer work um, through her faith tradition. So there's a really nice sense of variety about what this can mean to, 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 to target a third third place. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. And, you know, as I was listening, th- those were sort of great, great pieces to hear about all the different listeners' um, perceptions of their own third places. I thought about how substitutable they are. Um, a lot of my work focuses on rural contexts and where you may only have two or three third places in your community. You may not have a public library, but the local, you know, um, McDonald's or the local uh, diner might serve the similar purpose in providing connection. And, um, you know, I think that's something important to keep in mind of, you know, how do even in places with spar- that are sparsely populated, how can they um, have spaces that, you know, may not look like they would look in an urban center, but can still serve a similar purpose? Sure. You've um, looked, and we sort of touched on this in the, in the first segment of the program, you've looked at disparities according to um, socioeconomic factors uh, around third place availability. Can you tell us a little bit more about that research? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, um, we know that um, third places are less available in places with the highest levels of poverty. Um, And that's problematic because we know that these spaces can also be used for social upward mobility, right? Um, And so having less access to those that are problematic. Um, We also see that, you know, when we measure per capita, so the number of third places per person, um, even uh, differences across the rural-urban continuum, so them being less less available in rural settings. And then also some differences across um, racial composition with um, communities with the largest shares of non-Hispanic whites being home to, you know, the, some of the most third places. And so recognizing the potential consequences of that as we think about, you know, uh, providing folks not only opportunities for their own health and well-being, but also for community development, which we know can be linked to social uh, third places as well. And how should we be responding to those inequities? And, and let me fo- focus for as one example on um, fewer third places in rural spots, for example? What are, what are some of the approaches to, to d- deal yeah. with that? So that's a great question. So investing in and supporting free or commercial third places can typically get a buy-in from folks on both sides of the aisle. It's an ideal public-private 
community development mm-hmm. tool. But you don't also you also don't have to have a ton of of funding to make this happen. And the example that I like to give in my hometown, um, Deferriot, New York, it has a population of 400. It's an old mill town and has lost most of its third places at this point. Um, but one of the local local mayors at one point in time had taken the park and turned it into the place where you went for Friday night movies. And they, you know, pulled together a PowerPoint projector and a screen, right? And what it gave folks in that community is this feeling of connectedness, belonging, identity. It gave us a space to connect with each other again. And so, you know, there's ways even on a limited budget that local leaders can have a meaningful impact on the residents of their communities. All right. Well, Danielle Rubart, uh, Assistant Professor of Biobehavioral Health and Demography at Penn State University, thanks so much for your time today, for, for, for starting us off on, on uh, what I think is a really important conversation. So, so many thanks. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And let me introduce um, your Jorge Gonzalez Hermoso. He's a research associate at the Urban Institute's Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center. And Jorge, good to have you. Thank you for having me, Anthony. Also with us is Danielle Littman, assistant professor at the University of Utah College of Social Work. Danielle, great to have you as well. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd love to start off asking you both the first question I asked the other Danielle at the start of the show. <laughs> your, your, your third place. Danielle, your favorite third place. Yeah, so I just moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and I have to say that in just the past couple of weeks, I recently went to the local public library downtown for the first time, got my library card. And of course, this is my research, and so it made me very excited to get to contribute um, to supporting a third place in my community. But I also found myself getting kind of emotional um, seeing all of the different kinds of people that were there and all the different kinds of resources that were there. It really affirmed um, my belief in and value for third places in my own community. Nice. Jorge, what about you? So I am in Washington, D.C., and uh, I live uh, very close to a dog park. And it is my favorite third place, not only because I love dogs and it's just (laughs) fun to uh, see them play, but I feel like everybody who goes there is very much open to uh, meeting new people to conversation, you can come over and you know talk to them and say hi. Uh, everybody is pretty much in in the mood to to engage with you, which doesn't happen in every third place. Um, but the dog parks have something special. They really do. I mean, the special thing that dog parks have is are dogs who can who can sort of break down that initial social awkwardness between people who don't know each other. I, I love exactly. that about dog parks. Um, Jorge, let me stick with you because you have data um, that tell us something about what happened to third place communities during the pandemic. We know that lots of um, places had to shut down because of COVID. What did you find? What does your data tell you? Yeah, so I think we all, just from our own uh, experiences and, and anecdotes, we know that a lot of places in our communities, in our neighborhoods, uh, unfortunately, uh, closed. And um, I looked at the data, and using Yelp data, uh, by September of 2020, so we were still pretty much in the midst of the pandemic, um, Yelp had registered 160,000 business closures. And so these are businesses that have storefronts. These are brick and mortar businesses, right? Mm. Uh, can serve at third places. But the more um, uh, worrisome data uh, 
point here is that 60% of those closures were permanent. So they were not just waiting to, trying to weather the storm, uh, they, they were gone. And this is after we had so many efforts, uh, public policy efforts to keep these businesses afloat, like uh, the, the Paycheck Protection Program, for example, at the federal level, but also other state and local uh, policies uh, that were trying to keep a lot of these businesses alive. Right. And what do we know, and I'll come to you, uh, Danielle, for this, about the implications of this and of these widespread closures of third places? Is it associated with poor physical and and mental health, for example? What do we know about the consequences of this? Yes. So. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You go ahead, Jorge. And then to you, Danielle. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, so we, we've talked uh, uh, already about all the benefits of these third places in terms of um, all different types of outcomes. Um, specifically with these closures, um, there are very immediate uh, negative effects with uh, vacant storefronts. So uh, they reduce food traffic. People don't want to visit those commercial corridors if, you know, a lot of the businesses there are closed anyway. Uh, it could, you know, uh, facilitate or uh, make it easier the, to uh, perhaps the buildup of trash. Um, you have other types of issues, uh, criminal activity perhaps in some cases. So you have these very immediate effects uh, in this, in uh, as a place that uh, that happens when, when you get all of these closures at this rate. Obviously, there are uh, other kinds of negative benefits in terms of just uh, economic impact, right? So there were people who had jobs here. There, these were entrepreneurs that perhaps put all their savings into putting these, these businesses together. And there's also uh, impact to the communities that were relying on some of these services or perhaps on the amenities. And to some extent, you know, there was even uh, a sense of identity that these businesses provided to community residents that they no longer have. Sure. And Danielle, um, the same question to you. I mean, do we know something about uh, how this is associated with poor physical and, and, and mental health among people who have suddenly or over time, I guess, over the course of the pandemic, have less access to third places? Absolutely. So one thing I'll say is that when these third places are closing, these losses are going to be felt most among those who are socially and economically marginalized in our society, because a lot of those folks are relying on third places as buffers against stress and isolation and loneliness, um, but also for access to basic resources. So when we think about um, many of the third places in our own communities, like the library that I mentioned, um, these are third places that are providing basic resources to folks. And if somebody doesn't have access to that in other places in their lives, um, that is going to be very differentially felt um, versus somebody who can get that in their first and second place. Set. Sure. So that I think is really important to acknowledge here. We mentioned um, Robert Putnam's book, uh, Bowling Alone, at the top of the show. And um, this was written back in, in, in 2000. And so we, it feels like we've been headed heading in this direction for a long time, even before the pandemic, uh, Danielle. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? I mean, it, did the pandemic sort of accelerate this concern and, uh, y- you know, about the loss of, of third places? Yes, Um And it's interesting to note, too, um, that um, Finley and colleagues um, did some research on the National Establishment Time Series data, um, and they did confirm that the overall number of third places are declining in American society. 
But the third places that are experiencing the most closures are more of those commercial settings, personal settings like barbershops, laundromats, bookstores, music stores. But we also see that certain third places like libraries, um, parks, civic, social settings are actually experiencing an increase during this time. Um, and this suggests that you know these public and community versus commercial third places are p pretty essential in meeting the needs of our community members in our present social landscape. Right. And I'm wondering if this is all, um, and Jorge, I'll come to you for this, is if this sort of challenge of fewer third places uh, accelerated during the pandemic, if this has sort of given us an opportunity to reimagine the third place, maybe. Um, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, I think there are, uh, as I mentioned, different types of third places. I, I focus mostly on these more geared towards businesses, commercial corridors, and, and we definitely saw uh, a huge impact there, as it has been mentioned. I just wanted to leave us uh, with a little bit more of a positive note that we've, despite all of these closures, we've also seen since 2021 a record in the rate of new business formation in the U.S. Um, so we are creating new businesses at, at a rate that we haven't we hadn't seen in years. Obviously, these not necessarily will become third places because they don't necessarily have to be uh, brick and mortar places. But it's it's definitely a a promising uh, data point that I just wanted to to include for us. And to back, going back to your question, definitely the pandemic showed us the importance, for example, of parks, uh, because, you know, as public spaces, we all wanted to be outdoors. Um, for me personally, it now picnics at the park was not a thing that I used to do. And now me and my friends, we do it very often. And it's, it's very, very nice. Mm. Um, so, and there's definitely other... Uh, a lot of open-ended questions here and with other very interesting trends because we also start seeing, for example, the first and the second place starting to merge, right? We're all working from home. And so I wonder if that also uh, is going to, to provide a new, uh, you know, we, we're going to start seeing the third place differently. We're going to think, well, now there's only going to be two places and, and this we really need to take it pay attention to the second place. Uh, now this being, you know, the public space where, where we come together. Um, so yeah, the pandemic really brought a lot of changes and it was, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the coming years. Really interesting. I'm, I'm interested that you focus on um, sort of business corridors and, and I want to ask you both about this and I'll, I'll stick with you for this first question, uh, Jorge, and that is, some of these third places cost money to enter, whether they're gyms or whether they're businesses, even, you know, bars and restaurants. How important, though, is it that some third places be free with minimal barriers to entry? Because clearly not everybody can can pay that uh, that fee or the cost of, of entering some of these places. Right. It is very important. And I really appreciate that you, you bring it up um, because one of the special features and one of the benefits of the of the third places and, and going back to Oldenburg uh, who first introduced the term is that they can be uh, equalizing places or democratizing places mm. and this is very important to um, to really get some of the benefits that the third places have in terms of uh, creating creating social capital, uh, developing common values among people, developing trust when we interact constantly with each other, uh, developing a civil culture and having solidarity and empathy towards each other. All of these things will not happen as much if, you know, there is a fee or a subscription or some type of uh, economic barrier 
to be able to um, to uh, to access a third place. And I think that is particularly uh, troublesome or worrisome in the United States, where I feel like we've relied a lot on these more uh, commercial-focused third places, like the mall and commercial corridors. And in other places, I, I speak from my personal experience here. I, I grew up in Mexico, and and sort of the the urban design it follows very much, you know, these old European cities where you always, not only at the city level but at the neighbor neighborhood level, you always have some form of main plaza that is usually in front of the the neighborhood church and everybody knows that this is the place where we come as a community if we need to engage with others in our neighborhoods um, this is the place and right. if we have you know if we are depending on businesses on paying a price then you know you don't really have uh, such a good third place right jorge daniel st- stand by we're going to take a, a quick break we're talking about the third place the community we have outside our home school or work They've been in decline in recent years. The pandemic accelerated that loss. Come up, coming up, we're going to talk about how to fix that around public policies. What can we do uh, to ensure that there are enough, more third places? Stay with us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case and a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to be talking about tipping. If you work at a place with tips or a service charge, what do you wish your customers knew about where those payments go? If you're that customer, have you noticed more places asking for tips? Have you noticed new service charges on your restaurant check? How do you decide when to tip and how much to tip? Tell us your tipping stories by recording a message on the On Point Vox Pop app. You can find that by searching for the On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps, or you can leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. Again, that phone number, 617-353-0683. Tell us all of your thinking on all things about tips. Today, we are talking about third places. If home is our first place and work or school is our second place, third places are where we go to connect with our community. The number of third places in America has been declining. The pandemic accelerated that. So how can we restore those third places and reimagine them? And reimagine them? We're joined by Jorge Gonzalez Hermoso, Research Associate at the Urban Institute's Metropolitan Housing and Communities Policy Center, and Danielle Littman, Assistant Professor at the University of Utah College of Social Work. And um, 
Danielle and Jorge, let's listen to another story about a third place. Bonnie Tsui is a journalist and the author of Why We Swim and American Chinatown, A People's History of Five Neighborhoods. My earliest memories of Chinatown are definitely walking around in the neighborhood in New York uh, with my family and, you know, listening to Cantonese being spoken. And that was the, the language I grew up in in my household, smelling you know, produce, steam buns, um, barbecued pork <laughs> from the restaurants. Chinatown in Manhattan was Bonnie's home Chinatown. But over the years, she's visited lots of Chinatowns across the country. She says each of these neighborhoods is part of a unique community, but she feels a sense of connection to all of them. There is both a very direct familiarity with oftentimes the language that people were speaking Cantonese and that I could speak back um, or that there was a familiarity of like, you are kind of like us, but also where are you from? I think in this context, it is a curiosity of like recognizing someone who feels perhaps like kin and wondering what your specific story is, recognizing actually the shades of difference, shades of nuance. And I think that's very beautiful. For Bonnie, Chinatown is not only a space for business and everyday life, it also provides a sense of comfort and safety. COVID-19 threatened that because some people unfairly blame the Chinese for the pandemic. And she says it wasn't the first time this happened to these communities. You don't really have to look back very far to see that when the cholera epidemic hit in the 1800s, that the neighborhood was targeted as it being the oriental, you know, cholera, or just to um, see the echoes of that and how quickly we return to that mode of thinking and of blaming a community for something that is foreign. Bonnie says growing up in New York, uh, Chinatown is where she developed a sense of community and identity. And now living in the San Francisco Bay Area, Chinatown remains a valuable third place. They're a space in which to grow and change that's not locked into these um, roles that we tend to play. And I think actually for for me as an adult, Chinatown has been one of those places that actually has been a space to play in from childhood to now. That's Bonnie Tsui. She's a journalist and the author of Why We Swim, an American Chinatown, a, a people's history of five uh, neighborhoods. And Jorge and Danielle, Danielle, I'll start with you. You know, when I listen to Bonnie's story, there's a bit of a paradox. I mean, Chinatown is a safe third place for her, but at the same time during the pandemic, they were places that were subject to unfair attacks about the origins of the pandemic. So can you talk a little bit about third places as safe spaces, particularly when safety might not exist in the first place at home or maybe at work? Absolutely. Um, and this is really one of the ways that I think that um, when we think about Oldenburg and Brissett's original theory of third places that is so important to adapt to today's world, um, that yes, it is incredible when we have those third places like Bonnie has had um, that provide this sense of belonging that that offer the sense that, you know, I am like other people here. I'm respected here. I'm valued here. Um but so often in today's, especially public third places, we really do see that discrimination and marginalization of folks and and really this question of belonging. Um, and so it's so important both to have those places um, where we feel like we belong to buffer against the marginalization that we face. Um, I think we often see this as well with LGBTQ young people um, 
having a third place, whether that's virtual or physical, where you can become yourself, where you can um, realize that there are other people like you and that it's okay to be you is is healing and it can be actually life-saving. And we see that when people are discriminated against um, and imagined not to belong in public spaces, that that can be incredibly harmful and unfortunately is so common in today's parks and libraries especially. Is that one of the sort of definitions that we're looking for here? I mean, one of the qualities, I guess, one of the conditions, that third places are automatically safe spaces. Is is that a good way to think about them, uh, Jorge? Oh, go ahead, Danielle. You, you, you tackle that one first because it's related sure. to what you were just saying. Yeah, well, I, I think that it is the ideal, and yeah. I don't know that it is always the reality. Um, and so a lot of my research has focused on how to more explicitly be inclusive um, in third places so that they can become safer spaces, especially to those who hold marginalized identities. Right. Jorge, I'd love to, love to hear your thoughts on that. This idea of third places automatically being safe spaces and... Um, and maybe they're not for everybody. How, wh- how do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think safety should be the very first condition, right? And, and safety from discrimination, safety just from any type of violence. Um, I uh, was able to participate in a, a, in a study in Fresno looking at how people engaged with public art. And uh, safety, security was one of the one of the the main uh, concerns that people had and and prevented them from engaging more and and being more in these public spaces. And I would say that another, the next level is it has to be safe and it also has to be welcoming and it has to be welcoming to Mm -hmm. all. So this is, we were talking a little bit about this in terms of, um, you know, business oriented third places that require you to spend some money and you need to have, you know, certain ability to, to pay. Um, but there's also it also comes in play with the design. So mm-hmm. when I was in grad school in Chicago, I I did a, a small ethnographic study of the 606 Linear Park. That was a new thing at the time, and it's a very interesting place uh, because it connects a very wealthy white neighborhood with um, uh, more uh, Latino and uh, lower income uh, neighborhoods on the on the west. And the park itself, and by design, because it's a linear park, it, it, it invites movement, right? It, mm-hmm. it invites jogging, and it invites uh, running, cycling. and uh, But it doesn't really have a lot of spaces where you can actually sit down and talk to other people. And there's actually a lot of research that talks about just how different groups in, in our communities may engage with public spaces differently, where mm-hmm. uh, white people may appreciate more... Uh, may put a premium more on the ability to exercise, for example, uh, whereas uh, Latino people, they want uh, places like picnic tables, uh, places for community where they can sit down, they, where they can talk to each other, where they can maybe celebrate a birthday party, things like that. So when we talk about third places and, you know, we, we need to think about these factors about safety, but also about uh, how welcoming they are for all. Interesting. Danielle, add to that if you'd like. Yeah, I would love to. And Jorge, I love that you're bringing up the 606. I was working for the Chicago Park District when that was being built, actually. Um, (laughs) So it's a a visceral um, memory and an example as well. Um, A lot of my research um, has been in partnering with young people who have experienced homelessness and housing instability. Um, And my colleagues and I have looked specifically at some of these um, physical elements that allow for people to feel welcome and 
and affirmed in third places. Um, one of those things that I think we already started to talk about when we were talking about cost to enter is that um, third places can meet everyday needs. So not even just being free, but actually providing resources as well. And we see some public libraries doing this now. Um, and I think more and more in the midst of the pandemic. Um, also, the, the free food fridge that was mentioned with the listener example is an example of mutual aid work um, happening in communities to meet those everyday needs. Um, the young people that I've partnered with have also suggested that um, being able to individualize the physical elements of a third place is really important. So thinking about modular um, spaces that actually can allow for um, furniture or other sort of infrastructure to be adaptable to meet users' needs, whether that's sitting alone, meeting with other people. Um, and when young people were imagining future third places, they had these more modular elements. And I think that speaks so beautifully, Jorge, to what you're saying about different um, communities using spaces in different ways. I'm, I'm also really intrigued about uh, Jorge describing this park that connects working class communities, Latino working class communities with more wealthy communities. And it makes me think about, is there a risk that some third places could also be very siloed and maybe not do that, not sort of encourage that kind of openness and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of cross-pollination among different communities, which seems to be a, a really nice aspect of what Jorge was describing. Danielle? Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would love to speak to that. And this yeah. um, also comes from the research that I've done with, with young people who've experienced housing instability. Um, in Oldenburg and Brissett's original theory, they talk about how third places enable socialization, that power dynamics outside of these spaces don't exist in third places. And um, the young people I partnered with in my study recognized that it's not enough just to be inclusive or to imagine that places can be for everyone, that we actually need to send messages of an explicit inclusion that not only does everybody belong here generally, but no, you belong here. And we imagined you here when we are creating this space. So to make that more explicit um, was something that was a goal of future third places. Jorge, um, if we know that because of the pandemic, we lost lots of third places, how do we rebuild them um, at a communal and sort of policy level? How do we invest in third places as a society? Or maybe another way of asking that question, what's the role of public policy, urban planning, and, and so on and so on? Are, are people thinking about that um, in the right way these days? Um, yeah, I, I think people are definitely thinking thinking about it in some cases uh, in, in better ways, uh, but this is something that we will find out together, I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, for commercial corridors specifically, there's a wealth of policy innovations that are going around. Um, the pandemic really, really put a spotlight on the importance of these places because we lost them, right? Mm. Uh, at, even if only for a few months in some cases, but uh, there's there's an interest from from the public sector and also philanthropic and, and the private sectors to to really uh, to really support these places. And so, just wanted to to talk a, a couple of examples. For example, in Chicago, there's something called the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund that takes uh, funds uh, from fees that are paid by developers in downtown 
So these big, big developments, they have to pay all sorts of fees that goes into a fund and then it is used uh, to provide grants for uh, business owners who have brick and mortar storefronts in disinvested neighborhoods and dis disinvested commercial corridors. And these are grants that are that have to be used to improve the uh, the storefront, to improve the um, the physical space that is uh, on, on the sidewalk, on the storefront, et cetera, to improve these commercial corridors, to make them more inviting, to make them uh, uh, more, uh, so that more people visit them. And, and, you know, it's not only improving the public space, but also the, um, the business opportunities for the business itself. Sure. And then, for example, DC has vacant storefront taxes so that this should incentivize uh, who owns that commercial real estate to, you know, just not wait for for whoever is going to pay the highest rent, but to keep these places active and, and, and occupied, which, as we talked, um, it's it's very important. And I just wanted to mention, uh, just to the point what we were talking about earlier, in terms of making spaces more welcoming, I think it's also, this is a good opportunity to bring in programming. So a lot of mm -hmm. public initiatives to activate these spaces, to hold festivals and to hold public art, also mm -hmm. to have street vendors, for example. And so these are ways so that we, these spaces that maybe some people will perceive as like, oh no, that's a place where, you know, we don't go. Maybe if there's a festival that celebrate, celebrates, you know, your community is like, hey, I've never thought about going to this place, but now I'm going because they're doing this cool event there. It's so interesting you mentioned that. You know, just uh, uh, just last week, actually, I was uh, down by the waterfront in East Boston, which um, I hadn't really thought about in this way. And suddenly there was sort of, a, and I don't even know exactly who organized it, but I was just driving by and there was a big outdoor screen, a movie, there were food trucks in a lot that was otherwise vacant where private boats were stored. But suddenly there was just a whole bunch of members of the community just out on a warm summer night watching a movie, um, coming together around food trucks. Uh, I think there was even some music being played. And I just thought, wow, that's a, a really sort of obvious and interesting and pretty straightforward way to kind of energize uh, community engagement. Uh, and yeah, go ahead. I would, I would add that this is particularly important for new places. So if we are building new parks, new plazas, new, we need to also think about activation because, uh, you know, all these older places that have existed before they've developed, you know, uh, a reputation, people, you know, have their, com their, their visitors, but new places need that sort of help, right, yeah. to, to jumpstart. Well, Danielle, we literally have 20 seconds left. I'd love <laughs> to get a final thought from you about what excites you out there about sort of the way third places are being reimagined. I am most excited about partnering with those who will be using the spaces in the future and in the context of my research, young people in particular, um, as partners in reimagining what third places of the future need to be that are welcoming and affirming and supportive and safe. All right. Well, that's Danielle Littman. She's assistant professor at the University of Utah uh, College of Social Work. And Danielle Littman, thanks so much. It was great to have you. I really appreciated your thinking Thank on this. Thank you. And Jorge Gonzalez Hermoso, research associate at the Urban Institute's Metropolitan Housing and Community Policy Center. Great pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining the conversation. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for joining this hour. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. <laughs>